You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Nation of Israel. This is a sure sign of Christ's return. Ancient and modern history combine to verify Bible prophecy in its bold claim that the continuing existence of the nation of Israel is proof of a living God. Good evening, friends, and welcome along to tonight's Bible presentation. Tonight we hope to show that the nation of Israel, which obviously from the flag there you can see exists in the world today, is a certain sign that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. Now, both the idea of the nation of Israel and also of the return of Christ occur from beginning to end of the Bible. We're just going to focus on a few key passages this evening, so hopefully we won't find it too complicated. And just, we don't want to miss the power of these passages as they show to us that the the nation of Israel is indeed a sign that Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. But perhaps you're sitting there to start with this evening thinking, well, why would we choose Israel to look at? What's so special about the nation of Israel? Well, to ask that question is really to start on a puzzle that has intrigued many a great mind in history. As one author aptly observed, Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, that speaks the same language, that worships the same God, that it did 3,000 years ago, and I skipped, that bears the same name. This is the only nation that can boast that record. And so when we come to discuss the nation of Israel, we are speaking about a unique nation. No nation in the world has inspired so much love and yet so much hate all at the same time. No nation has influenced the course of human history for so long and to such a great extent as that of Israel. And you might sort of question that. Are we sure about that? Well, just consider for a moment. What other nation do you know of that is responsible for over half of the world's religions? Christianity originated with Christ, who was a Jew. Islam traces its roots back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish race. And Judaism itself, of course, originates with Abraham too. Over half of the world's population trace their religious persuasion back to this little country of Israel. And speaking of a little country, it's worth remembering that Israel is a tiny little nation in the Middle East. You could fit it ten times into the state of Victoria. 
In fact, the, the continent of Australia is 347 times larger than Israel. Just shows you how small this nation is that we're, that we're dealing with. And into that tiny little area are squeezed a population of approximately 9 million. The modern state of Israel has actually only been in existence for, for 73 years. It only became a nation again in the year 1948. And before then, the Jews were scattered across the entire world. But one of the most intriguing things about this nation of Israel is that despite its tiny size and its relative youth as a modern nation, Israel are world leaders in technology and innovation. They've been called the startup nation with the highest number of new businesses per capita. They're involved in the development of things such as the USB and the mobile phone and many other tech, tech inventions. In fact, only this morning I was having a look at the news and Australia's health minister, Greg Hunt, again looked to Israel, as he's done multiple times throughout the pandemic, as a leader in the vaccine response and now in dealing with the Omicron variant. So Israel are up there. They are key players in science and technology. But if you really want to see just how influential they are in the world, just have a look at the 975 Nobel Prizes that have been awarded over the, the last 120 years. And there's a lot of people in the world, but over 20% of those prizes, that's one in five, have been awarded to Jews. You know, if that was said of Australia, we'd be pretty impressed. This is nothing short of astounding the prominence of this nation, despite their size, despite their number. So what's going on with the Jewish people? You know, this particular question about the Nobel Prizes was actually put to the noted uh, atheist Richard Dawkins. He was asked why he thought that the Jews have won so many Nobel Prizes, and he says, well, I haven't thought it through. I don't really know. But I don't think it's a minor thing. It is colossal. And really, he couldn't answer this problem of what's so special about the Jews. You could also take a look at their recent wars, just over the last century, to see just how extraordinary this nation is. If you go to Israel today, it's filled with museums recounting fabulous stories of unlikely battles, the War of Independence, the Six-Day War, They've won these wars against all odds, often severely outnumbered and perhaps facing five or six of their enemies all at once. There certainly seems to be something a little different about Israel. It's so small, yet it's always in the news. And it has a history that brings everyone to its shores and yet which still manages to polarise the globe. Israel is to be found at the junction of three of the Earth's continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's a land bridge between these three land masses. And even ancient maps of the world recognise this to be the case. There you've got Jerusalem pictured as the centre of the then known world. And as such, it's been the stomping ground for world empires throughout history as they've marched north and south to conquer each other. And so, Israel has always been at the centre of world affairs. But why is that? I mean, that's all very interesting, all those facts and figures. 
But what really makes Israel what it is? And well, this is where we really come to the significant part of our topic this evening. You see, Israel are different because they are God's very own nation. And they've been God's very own nation for thousands of years. And perhaps we haven't thought too much about the nation of Israel, apart from the odd reference in the news or perhaps thinking about their constant antagonism to countries of the Middle East. But when we turn to God's word, when we turn to the Bible, we find a very different view of the nation of Israel. It explains perfectly why it is that they are, what it is that's so peculiar about this nation. Because the Bible tells the story of the nation of Israel's formation and it describes them as God's very own evidence in the earth. The nation of Israel are a living witness that God exists and that he is in fact the only true God. And so the first passage from the Bible that we'd like to refer to this evening is taken from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. He was one of God's messengers to the nation of Israel. If you'd like to turn, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Now these words in Isaiah 43 were written over 2,500 years ago. And Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. So God is speaking directly to the nation of Israel at this time. And you'll notice there they're called both Jacob and Israel. They are both uh, names of the same man from whom the, the nation descended. And so... God is speaking here to the nation of Israel. And if we skip down to verse 10, in Isaiah 43, verse 10, God says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God, neither shall there be after me. And then down in verse 12, God says again to the nation of Israel, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. So what the prophecy of Isaiah back in the Old Testament here is telling us is that for as long as the nation of Israel exists, so too does the God of Israel. They are his witnesses. The evidence that he is in fact God. So perhaps the opening challenge from the God of the Bible this evening is that if you want to prove that God doesn't exist, well then all you need to do is get rid of the nation of Israel. But when you try, or if you try, you just need to remember that you're not the first who's attempted it. And you also won't be the last. But there is one thing for certain, and that is that you won't succeed. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go on a lightning-fast review of the nation of Israel's history, that is, of God's witnesses here in the earth. And as we do, we're going to highlight just a few of the countries and, and powers that have tried to get rid of Israel. And we're also going to see just how many times they've failed in that attempt. And as we go, 
Remember that every time Israel survives, their God is saying, see, I'm God. I'm the God of Israel and I'm the only God. And as we near the end of Israel's story, we'll see that there is indeed more to it. Because the same God who's placed Israel as his witness here in the earth has also said, as we'll see later on, that he's going to send his son, Jesus Christ, to return as king, king of the kingdom of Israel, re-established here on the earth. But we'll reach that in due course, it's just so that you know where we're headed. For now, let's go on a quick history of the nation of Israel. Well, the story of Israel began with a single man, Abraham, in around the year 2000 BC. Abraham lived in a city called Ur, in modern-day Iraq. This man, Abraham, was given some promises by the God of heaven, but they were contingent upon him leaving his homeland of Ur and travelling to a place that he didn't know about at the time. Well, Abraham obeyed God's instruction and he was led to what was then known as the land of Canaan, or modern-day Israel. And if you were to read the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you'll find that Abraham was given some wonderful promises in that book. And in Genesis 12, through to 22, we read that Abraham was promised that he would receive many, or be given many children, which include the nation of Israel today. He was also promised a land to inherit, which incorporates the modern-day territory of Israel. And he was also promised that a special descendant evidently an individual man because he's referred to there as his or his enemies, this individual man would come and reign the world. Now, you'll see that our third dot point there on the screen says, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Well, I said that he's going to rule the world. How does that work? We just need to remember this is written 4,000 years ago and, and back in those days, if you wanted to live safely, you needed to live inside a city with walls. And, of course, the only way in and out of that city was through the gates. So if your enemy had control of the gates of your city, well, they controlled you and and the entire entire city. So really what this is saying, if, if this descendant of Abraham has control of the gates of his enemies, he controls all his enemies. And we'll see a little later on that this is, in fact, Jesus Christ and that he will rule the world We'll see that from some other prophecies. Well, having been promised many children, a land and a particular descendant to rule the world, Abraham in time died, and his descendants formed the nation of Israel. Very early on in the nation's existence, God gave Israel some national blessings and curses, and they are recorded for us in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy the fifth book of the Bible, and in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now the blessings, such as a prolific harvest and good health, they would come if the nation were obedient to God and believed in him. Whereas the curses, including various plagues and disasters, and ultimately invasion by their enemies, well, the nation would suffer these curses if they left their God. And this is where we learn why it was that God chose to choose one particular nation on earth to be his witnesses in the earth. A little earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said concerning Israel, Thou art an holy people to the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. But notice this next bit. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. You see, God didn't choose Israel to be his witnesses because, you know, it was the biggest and the best nation. In fact, a little later in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 9, he clearly tells Israel that it wasn't because they were more righteous either. No, it was nothing to do with Israel's size or how good they were. We're told that it was because the Lord loved Israel and because he would keep the oath or the promise that he'd sworn unto their fathers, which includes the man Abraham. Okay, so if it wasn't because Israel was better or bigger than the rest of the world, why did God choose them to be his special people? Was it just because he'd made some promises? Well, yes, to a certain degree it was. As you can see, God's care for Israel is related to those promises. But again, we ask the question, why did God choose to make those promises in the first place? Why did he choose to select one nation out of all humanity? Well, it's all to, all to do with the instructions that God gave to his people about how they should live. The whole idea in God giving Israel blessings and curses was so that other nations around Israel would look at them and they would see the blessings that God gave them for obeying them. And therefore they would want to serve the same God. Or they would see the devastating effects of the curses on, upon God's nation. And therefore they would resolve not to sin in the same way that Israel did. And that's really what we see as we continue to read through the rest of the Bible. So let's go back, if you've got a Bible, let's go back to this book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28 to gain a picture of the types of blessings and curses that were promised upon the nation. And as we go, I'll just put a summary up on the screen for you. If Israel obeyed God's laws, then the first 14 verses of the book of, sorry, of Deuteronomy chapter 28 tell us that the nation would receive prosperous cities with a thriving population in verse 3. They'd also be given good crops and harvests, many children, large flocks and herds. They'd be blessed with safety. They would be victorious over their enemies and they would be blessed in everything that they put their hands to. And all of that is contained in those verses 3 to 8 there. But what's particularly interesting is what follows that list of blessings. Because Deuteronomy 28 and verse 10 says, And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. They're going to see that, that you're God's special people, Israel. So there was a purpose in giving these blessings. And it was specifically so that the nations around could learn about Israel's God. Well, that's all very well. But what if Israel chose not to follow God's instructions? What if Israel failed in their purpose of living by God's national instructions? 
Well, then God gives a, a list of curses. Let's have a look at these curses that we've got here on the screen. If Israel disobeyed God, then they would first receive curses inside the land. And these involved trouble in the city, poor crops, disasters in storehouses, cursed children, reduced flocks and herds, failure in the projects that they undertook, diseases, droughts and famines. And if all of that wasn't enough, and they chose not to turn their lives around, well then they would be invaded. And notice that this is the the first of three captivities that are foretold here in Deuteronomy 28. But after Israel's enemies had come into the land and they'd carted them off, what if they still didn't respond? Well, the next few verses says that God had sent another army and they'd go into captivity again the second time. But God's a merciful God and so he would bring Israel back to the land. But what if they still didn't learn the lesson? Well, God says in the last 20 verses or so of Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel continued to test God's patience, if they still didn't learn the lesson, then God would send Israel into captivity for a third time. And the captivity that's described in those, that last portion of Deuteronomy 28 is very, very awful. And the result of that captivity, says verse 64, would be to scatter thee, to scatter Israel among all people, from one end of the earth even to the other. And there Israel would have the opportunity to serve other gods. So God would give Israel a taste of what it was like to live outside of his land without their God and in ignorance of his laws because that's what they clearly wanted. If Israel rejected God, then God would reject Israel, at least for a time. And all of that would happen if Israel decided not to worship the God who had chosen them. Okay, so there's the the blessings and the curses laid out in Deuteronomy 28. What happens when we turn to history? What events transpired throughout the next few thousand years in Israel's history? Did they receive these blessings and curses? Well, initially, early on in the days of the Kingdom of Israel, around 1000 BC, during the reigns of kings David and Solomon, things went well. The nation served God, and so he blessed them. And even though the glory of their kingdom is long forgotten, in its day, it was known across much of the then known world. Rulers from other kingdoms came to see the glory of the kingdom of Israel and the way in which the God of Israel had blessed them. But then Israel turned against their God. And so step by step, the various curses of Deuteronomy 28 came upon them. And the nation went so far from their God that he finally brought the Assyrian army against the land of Israel in around the year 730 BC. And that was the first of those captivities that had been foretold back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And you can go to the history books and you'll find that Assyria took Israel captive around 730 BC. But half the nation stayed behind in the land of Israel and not having learned their lesson a hundred years later God sent the Babylonian army to invade them in the around the year 600 
BC. But 70 years later, Israel came back to the land but still didn't learn their lesson. And a few centuries later on, their disobedience came to a climax in the murder of God's own son, Jesus Christ, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And as a result of the nation's defiance of God, he subjected them to the third exile that had been foretold in Deuteronomy 28. In the year 70 AD, Israel was invaded by the armies of the Roman Empire. The great temple that had been built to worship God in Jerusalem was destroyed. And you can see here on the screen an an inscription in what's called the Arch of Titus in Rome. And it pictures the Romans looting the temple and taking all of its treasures off to their capital. And this time, the nation of Israel would remain in captivity for almost 2,000 years. And this was a direct fulfilment of those terrible curses that had been pronounced upon the nation right at the start of their existence. You'll recall that Deuteronomy said that God would scatter Israel among all people from one end of the earth, sorry, from one end of the earth even to the other. What do you think that would look like if you were to place it on a map? Well, perhaps it would look something like this. What you can see on the screen in front of you is a map of the current distribution of Jews across the globe. They're all over the place. And the darker the blue, the more the Jewish population in that country. Or if you wanted a little more detail, you could put it into a table form. And you can go up and look at, uh, go onto Wikipedia and have a look at the Jewish diaspora. It'll give you a list of 111 countries and the, the number of Jews that are in each country. How many people do you know that are, that are so scattered as the Jewish nation? Truly God has scattered them among all people from one end of heaven even to the other. And throughout their long history, attempts have been made to eradicate the Jewish race time and again. You can go to the history books and you'll find that Assyria tried to invade Israel, so did invade Israel. The Babylonians then conquered the land. The Greek Empire took Israel. The Romans destroyed their temple, their city, and dispersed their nation. Throughout the Dark Ages, Jews were driven out of countries all across Europe for hundreds of years. And then, as we well know, only 80 years ago, Hitler and Nazi Germany devised a systematic plan to exterminate all Jews under the Holocaust. And yet, Israel lives on. Even Hitler's final solution failed. But do you know the eerie thing about many of those empires we just mentioned? Most of them are remembered only in the pages of history. And great though they were in their heyday, they are now little more than a pile of ruins. But Israel lives on. And this is a testimony to another Old Testament prophecy regarding the nation of Israel. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah writes on behalf of God, I am with thee, saith the Lord, 
to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. So God said that he would never destroy Israel, even though he would destroy their enemies. And you know, a couple of hundred years ago, you could almost have been forgiven for asking, well, is this true? Will God really regather Israel? Or has he made an end of them? Are Israel ever going to be a nation again? But in recent times, in only the last century, this world has witnessed the return of many Jews to their ancient homeland. First came the expression of interest by what was then termed the Zionist movement. Inspired by a Jew by the name of Theodore Herzl, the Zionists expressed their desire for a homeland at this conference in Basel, Switzerland in the year 1897. Next came the expression of intent from the British Empire. Following World War I and the routing of the Ottoman Empire from the Middle East, the Zionists appealed for Britain, who had taken control of that area, for a homeland. And in 1917, a chap by the name of Lord Balfour, who's pictured there on the screen, issued a statement which paved the way for the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel. And this became known as the Balfour Declaration. Well, 20 years later came the Second World War and with it, the unparalleled persecution of the Jewish race under the Nazi Holocaust. And once more, the book of Deuteronomy had aptly foretold what life would be like during this time. You'll recall that we said the last section of Deuteronomy 28 talked about the Roman captivity and that the time of dispersion that would follow. Well, verses 66 and 67 of Deuteronomy 28 describes what life would be like. Thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even, and, in the, and at even thou shalt say, Would God it were morning? For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And the events of the Holocaust were so bad that all the Jews could do was wish the time away in fear of their lives. But you see, these events were needed because it was this event, the Holocaust, that drove the Jewish people to see their need for a homeland. And so the Holocaust led to the events of 1948. And on May the 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the establishment of the State of Israel, becoming its first Prime Minister, only a few years after the Second World War. And that occurred only 73 years ago. And as we now turn back to the Bible once more, we do so having seen events in recent years that were written of thousands of years ago. For whilst Deuteronomy 28 
left the nation of Israel in dispersion. Other Bible prophecies do not. And where the book of Deuteronomy left off, a later prophecy, that of the prophet Ezekiel, continues the story. Ezekiel lived around the year 600 BC. And he expands in particular upon the time when the nation of Israel would return from captivity and again live in the ancient territory of Israel. If you come with me to Ezekiel 37, if you have a Bible with you. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of all the people of Israel who had been banished to all corners of the globe. But he saw them pictured as a massive pile of dry bones in a valley. They were old, dilapidated and completely dried out. And that was a picture of Israel scattered across the entire world. It was a nation that was seemed dead, gone and forgotten. And the reason that they're described as this, this great big pile of bones is given to us in verse 11. In Ezekiel chapter 37 and in verse 11, Ezekiel was told, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried. Our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. And perhaps when Ezekiel was looking at this picture back in the year 600 BC, perhaps he had little idea just how aptly this image might resemble his people two and a half thousand years later. Worn out by a long history of exile and persecution, six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. I don't need to put up another image of the piles of Jewish corpses outside the gas chambers for you to appreciate just how appropriate this ancient symbol was for the dispersed and persecuted nation of Israel. And in the vision, the prophet Ezekiel was asked, Ezekiel, can these bones live? What do you reckon? If you were standing outside the gas chambers, would you say Israel had any hope? Well, Ezekiel responds, O Lord God, thou knowest. Well, then God says to Ezekiel, so actually God says to the, these bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will cause breath to enter, to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And so then as Ezekiel watched, all these bones in the valley began to form into their original skeletons. Of course, bear in mind, this is a vision that represents something else. They form into their original skeletons with ligaments and tendons followed by muscle and skin formed over the skeletons until eventually the valley was full of people. And really what Ezekiel saw here in this vision of Ezekiel chapter 37 is a picture of illustrating the nation of Israel coming back to life. In fact, that's exactly what Ezekiel saw here. Because God tells us that in Ezekiel 37, verses 21 to 22. And again, 
like, just like to read through those verses because this is really where our, our story comes together tonight. Ezekiel 37, verses 21 and 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and will bring them into their own land. And that's exactly what we've seen beginning to happen around the world. 1948, Israel proclaimed a nation once more. Ever since that time, there have been more and more Jews returning to the land. Of course, there's still more around the world, but the process has begun. Well, the prophecy keeps going. God says, And I will make Israel one nation upon the, uh, sorry, in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. Now, we'll see in a moment the Bible very clearly tells us that this king is Jesus Christ. But notice the point here. For almost 2,000 years, people could have been left wondering, when's this going to happen? Will it even happen? I mean, you know, Israel hadn't been a nation for 2,000 years. But now, since the year 1948, Israel are back on the world stage. And not just back, they are a significant player in world affairs. Because, they after, because, after all, they are God's witnesses here in the earth. And so you could say we've seen the beginning of the end. Israel are back in their land. They've started to be regathered from among the nations. And so now all we need to see is their king, Jesus Christ, return. And however unlikely it might have looked for century after century over the past 2,000 years, God has now brought his people back into their land. And in the same way that we've seen that occur, so the rest of the prophecy will also be fulfilled. One king shall be king to them all. And you can probably imagine that the prophecies of the return of this king to reign become a major theme throughout the Bible. So how do we know that this king here is Jesus who will come? Well, the Bible clearly states in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. When he was born, his mother Mary was told, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. As we mentioned earlier, David was one of the great kings of Israel. So Jesus Christ is going to inherit the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So Jesus Christ will reign over the nation of Israel forever, says Luke chapter 1. Verses 31 to 33. Well, during his time here on earth, the Lord Jesus himself spoke often and gave prophecies of his return. And the kingdom of God here on earth formed a most important part of his teaching. It was such a major part of his teaching, in fact, that when Jesus was killed by the Jews, there was a sign over the top of his cross 
that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Well, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he spent 40 days with his followers here on earth, teaching them more about the good news of this coming kingdom of God. And at the opening of the New Testament book of Acts, which records the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, we find Jesus' followers asking him a question. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, Jesus' disciples say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You know, Jesus has lived on earth. He died and now he'd been resurrected. And so the disciples were excited and they said, is this the time? Are you going to set up the kingdom of Israel that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus responds to them. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the world. So the Lord Jesus says to them, it's not appropriate for you to know when I'm going to return, but your job is to go and spread the good news, not only through the land of Israel, but through the entire world, that I am coming back and that I'll bring God's kingdom. Well, when he had spoken these things, while they were watching, we're told that he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And these two men, which were angels, said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, in just the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is going to return. Sure, he's gone to heaven, but he's coming back. And so from this time onwards, the apostles went out and they taught the good news across the Roman Empire that Jesus Christ had lived. He died, but he was now resurrected. And that we need to learn about him, the good news of salvation that he brings, because he's coming back. So 2,000 years later, how do we know that Jesus Christ is coming back? Well, quite simply, because God's left us a witness. God has left his people Israel as his witness in the earth. They are a nation again. That means that their God exists and that he will fulfill his promises to send his son, Jesus Christ, back to the earth soon. So when you see Israel in the news or hear of conflicts between Israel and her neighbours, just remember that she wasn't always there in quite the same way that she is today. But the fact that she is, is telling you something. It's telling us that Israel's king, Jesus Christ, is coming to rule the world. And if you'd like to hear a little more about what life will be like when he does come, then we'd invite you to join us next week as we consider the Bible's hope for the future under the title, 
peace on earth. God will achieve it at Christ's return. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.